1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We begin in verse 12. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all, to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 23. Something of a benediction here given by Paul when he says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. The last section in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians could come under a category that analysts often label uh, miscellaneous exhortations. We're familiar with the category of miscellaneous, aren't we? Whenever you uh, budget for your household, we know this to be true in the church. There are so many things, you just don't know where to put them in the budget, so you have a catch-all category called miscellaneous. And there are those that recognize the end of this epistle to be uh, just a list of miscellaneous exhortations given by Paul. A close look at these verses do reveal, don't they, a number of exhortations. We beseech you, he writes in verse 12. Now we exhort you, he writes again in verse 14. And then we find a very concise uh, number of exhortations that follow 
look with me at uh, verses 14 to 22. Let me just scan these if I can. Uh, We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Don't render evil for evil. Ever follow that which is good. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. Quench not the spirit. You get the idea, don't you? Well, here is a host of exhortations in Paul's concluding remarks. Now, uh, are these last-minute things, do you suppose, that just came to Paul's mind as he sought to wrap up this epistle? You know, you get the impression maybe he's running out of paper. He's got to bring this thing to a close. So here's the things that I really want to leave with you before I'm done. Or could it be that there's a common element that may link all of these exhortations together? I believe there is a common element. And that's what's shown to us in our text in verse 23. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had the desire for the Thessalonians to be wholly sanctified. That's tantamount to saying that he had the desire for them to grow in grace and in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And even though their lives were in many respects above reproach, Paul nevertheless recognized the potential for even greater improvement and growth in grace. I think this epistle as a whole really conveys to us the idea that as advanced as you are in so many areas, and the Thessalonians were advanced in many areas, they were advanced in brotherly love. And yet, in spite of Uh, how high up the scale they found themselves, what Paul indicates is that there is always room for improvement. Don't ever deceive yourself into thinking, I've arrived. This is as high as I can go. I cannot become any more sanctified than I am. I've attained perfection. Well, if you ever come to that view, maybe you better find a, uh, a Methodist church to join. John Wesley had... Um, a phony notion of Christian perfectionism. But I think God's word indicates, no, there's room for improvement. And there always will be room for growth and improvement so long as we're in this present world. So after expressing his desire for them to abound more and more, chapter 4 and verse 1, He goes on to say that this is the will of God, even your sanctification, in chapter 4 and verse 3. And as we read the words in our text, this apostolic benediction, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to pick up in the end of this epistle not simply a few miscellaneous thoughts, but a point of emphasis which magnifies what 
Paul had been writing earlier in the epistle. His desire is made very clear at the end of his letter that he wants these believers to know more of Christ, draw closer to Christ, serve Christ with greater fervency and increasing fruitfulness, and steer clear of anything and everything that would get in the way of that fellowship and service. You could say, in a sense, that these miscellaneous exhortations give the substance of how this sanctifying process is to take place. How can you and I do the will of God, knowing that his will is our sanctification? Well, here's how. Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Don't render evil for evil. Follow that which is good. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Well, that's a pretty... Uh, extensive list of things that demonstrate, really, the substance of sanctification. And by looking at these exhortations in the light of our sanctification, and then discovering from our text that God himself must sanctify us, then we have something of a concise but somewhat comprehensive understanding of our sanctification. Sanctification is not like justification. And since this is the month of October, a month that many designate as Reformation Month, where focus in many of our churches is on Reformation themes, always good, I think, to remind you of the distinction between justification and sanctification. In justification, we are merely the passive recipients of Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to us, freely given to us, received by faith. When you received Christ as your Savior, it brought with it what Paul calls in Romans 5 and verse 17, the gift of righteousness a perfect gift. And this is something we cannot earn. This is something we do not deserve. We simply receive it by faith. This is our justification. Sanctification, on the other hand, is defined as a work of God's free grace that enables us to die to sin more and more and live to God more and more. That's how our shorter catechism defines it. And we do have a part to play in our sanctification. We are enabled by God, and then we do our part. This was Paul's desire then for the Thessalonian believers that their sanctification be improved, which isn't a slight against where they were, but only a recognition that no matter where you are, there is room for growth. There is room for improvement. This is the desire, you know, that any pastor would have for his congregation, an increase in sanctification. This is the desire that parents should have for their children, increased sanctification. 
This is the desire that we all should have for one another and for ourselves as individuals. And so this morning, I want to exhort and admonish you that we must strive to be wholly sanctified. Okay, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose I should probably have added to that uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. I've got on my desk, actually it's in a drawer right now, it used to sit on my desk, a laminated card with, with uh, some fancy um, calligraphy uh, on it, uh, a floral design, and then a little message that says, the will of God is to do the will of God. Sounds a little bit circular, doesn't it? And I remember... On one occasion, one of my grandsons was in the study and he saw that card. The will of God is to do the will of God. What does that mean? Now, I explained it to him this way. In order to make sense of what's on that card, you have to understand the twofold way in which that phrase, the will of God, is being used. In the first instance, the will of God, that means what does God want you to do? And in the next instance, where the phrase, the will of God, occurs, it is making reference to the revealed will of God. So what does God want you to do? What is his will? His will is that you follow his word, follow what he's revealed. The will of God, what God desires, is that we do the revealed will of God. And what is the revealed will of God? Well, in chapter 4 and verse 3 there, Paul makes it pretty plain, doesn't he? For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So let's look at that today, and especially the exhortation, or the benediction, you could call it. Chapter 5, verse 23, The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, And as we strive to be holy, there are some things that can help us in that striving. Consider with me, first of all, that if we would strive to be holy, sanctified, we must do so by seeing God as the source of our sanctification. God as the source of our sanctification. Note again, verse 23, chapter 5, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. The point needs to be stressed then that God is the one who sanctifies his people. It is the work of God's Holy Spirit that makes us holy. And this is what sanctification means, to be made holy. And in the work of being made holy, we are as Christians completely dependent upon God. I referenced our catechism a moment ago Our catechism defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul writes that 
God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The very act of gaining a saving interest in Jesus Christ is the work of God's Spirit upon the heart. You could say that the new birth, which is that work of the Spirit upon the heart of a sinner, you can identify that as marking the very beginning point of where sanctification takes place. Here's where it starts, in regeneration, in the new birth, in a new nature being infused into your life. Before that, you were spiritually dead. You had really no interest in the things of God. You may have been religious, but you were still spiritually dead. Interesting to note, there's plenty of religious interest among those that are spiritually dead. But a common element among such people is that they fashion a God in their own minds and they follow a God of their own making. They do not, indeed they will not and cannot submit to the God who's revealed in the Bible. Instead, they fashion a God so that they can confine him to their own specifications. You could say they do the very opposite of what we find in Scripture. In the Bible, you read that God created man in his own image. The practice of sinful man ever since the fall has been to create a God of his own in man's own image. Very popular practice among those that are spiritually dead. I remember many years ago when I worked in the printing industry still, there was um, a lady there who was very interested in religion I don't know if I'd ever met somebody who was so boldly liberal in their religious beliefs as this lady. It was her opinion that the Apostle Paul was a male chauvinist. It was her belief that this world came into existence through evolution. She was that liberal in her faith. During that period when I worked at uh, design printing, there was a time when the Dalai Lama, heard of the Dalai Lama? He's an exiled Buddhist monk. And he came to Indiana uh, to speak in Bloomington. And this lady went to hear him. And when she returned, she told me all about it. She gloried in the fact that there had been a Buddhist monk, a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic nun, and some liberal Protestant minister who all shared a platform and proclaimed their desire for peace to prevail in the world. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? I asked her if she bought into the kind of ecumenism that brought so many different faiths together, no matter what those faiths subscribed to individually, and she assured me that she did buy into that kind of ecumenism. I then expressed to her my opinion that the religious trend of the day is to visit the market of religion, so to speak, where each one, if you could picture it this way, uh, picture a flea market, 
but this is a religious flea market, okay? They're all represented there. Everyone has set up a booth describing what they believe. They have the material to describe what they believe, and the individual is then allowed to visit the various booths and pick and choose from the tenets of each religion, choosing what he likes, discarding what he doesn't, until he at last creates a composite religion of his own making. I think this lady actually liked that analogy and may have even believed in it. But then I raised the question to her. I asked her, who is God under that kind of activity? And the truth of the matter is that the individual who does the choosing becomes God. He determines for himself what is and what isn't true concerning God. And you begin to see my point. I hope that the lost sinner does not submit to God who has revealed himself. The lost sinner instead fashions a God in his own mind. He becomes the determiner of truth. And if I am going to decree that God has any existence at all, then he must fit uh, the pattern that I uh, subscribe to in my own puny little finite mind. That was your condition and mine until an act of power was wrought upon your heart and my heart. And that act of power was the Holy Spirit opening our blind eyes, unstopping our deaf ears, subduing the rebellion of our sinful hearts, and then pointing us to Christ and enabling us to submit to him to the saving of our souls. That was the beginning of sanctification, and it was wrought by God. Could I point out something else about our text In chapter 5 and verse 23, notice, if you will, that Paul says it is the very God of peace. Underscore that designation. I love that. I suppose we'll get to that in our prayer meeting studies eventually as we go through names of God and attributes of God. The very God of peace. A very strong hint in that title that there is a close tie between our sanctification, and our justification. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, Paul writes, Romans 5 and verse 1. And it is because we are at peace with God that we can be sanctified. It is because we know God has imputed our sins to Christ and then bore our judgment, and God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us, which gives us a perfect standing with God. This knowledge that God can and has justly forgiven our sins is what brings peace to our souls. You've heard me say it on numerous occasions, especially in the month of October, that when it comes to justification, really you could boil it down uh, to this. Justification is salvation as it pertains to God's justice. And it is always worth emphasizing the truth that there is a connection between salvation and God's justice. 
God didn't put away his justice. God didn't lower the standard of his justice. Christ, rather, fulfilled that standard and then paid the debt and satisfied divine justice. And unless you can, as a believer, make that connection between justification, God's justice, and salvation, if you can't make that connection, chances are you probably struggle in the whole realm of having peace with God. Because if you can't make that connection, really you're you're, you're compromising the gospel to a point that makes it unbelievable to the very depth of your heart. You don't really believe, and I've heard this expressed, maybe you have too, that in salvation, what God did is he looked upon sinful men, he noted that they could not and they are not keeping the standards of the Ten Commandments, so he decided to make it easier. Here's what I'll do, he said. Instead of keeping the Ten Commandments, Keep just this one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now it is absolutely true that you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's taken right out of Acts 16. We've got no qualm with that verse. But what we do have serious qualms over is that this somehow sacrifices the justice of God or lowers the standard of God. No, it does not. Christ fulfilled the standard. Christ satisfied every claim of the law. And then Christ paid our debt to the broken law. And when I know that, and I understand that God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus as a result of knowing that God is righteous in my salvation or just in my salvation, when I know that in the depth of my heart, I can be at peace with God. And in the power of that peace, Gratitude becomes the driving force for everything we strive for in our sanctification. Gratitude, as we freely, by faith, strive in dependence at all times upon God to be wholly sanctified, we do this with the recognition that we are at peace with the God of the universe. In striving for holiness, we are not striving to earn something from God. We have already faced the truth that we cannot and we need not strive to earn anything from God. But because he has given us salvation and the gift of righteousness that comes with salvation, that becomes our motivation then for striving to be holy. So it becomes very important for you to understand what the basis of that title is. The very God of peace sanctify you holy. Uh, God has made the way of peace for you and I uh, to be at peace with him. There is a sense in which we're at war. Okay, I'm not denying that. I get that. But there's also a sense in which we are at peace. Striving for sanctification, then, the very phrase suggests a struggle. And don't we know it in our experience that it is a struggle? 
a struggle to avoid being overcome by the flesh and all its lusts, a struggle to avoid being overcome by the world and all its ungodly ways, but it's a struggle we're willing to enter because we are at peace with God. We've been reconciled to him through the blood of Christ. And because we are at peace with him, we take up the spiritual warfare against the world and the flesh and the devil. We do so because, as I said a moment ago, we're thankful for so great salvation We do so because we have a love for purity and righteousness which we did not have before the Spirit of God worked mightily in our hearts. So the first thing we learn from the text then is that we strive to be wholly sanctified by seeing the very God of peace as the source of our sanctification. Consider with me next that we strive to be wholly sanctified by seeing obedience as the expression of that sanctification. Obedience is the expression of our sanctification. And under this heading, we're able to take into account the various exhortations that govern our actions and our attitudes. But before we look at those, call to mind the words of Christ. If you love me, Christ says, In his word, keep my commandments. And we reply, we do love you, Lord Jesus. We love you for saving our souls. We love you for delivering us from eternal condemnation. We love you for bearing our penalty. What commandments, Lord, would you have us to keep? And the first commandment given in our text is a command to submit to the authority that God puts in place for our good and for his glory. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 now in 1 Thessalonians 5. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. We know this, don't we? Submission to authority is not something that's very popular in our day. And yet there can be no denying the truth that God has set up authority structures, even in our society. There is the authority of the government, the civil government. We're commanded to submit to that authority. There is the authority of the husband being the head of the home. Paul addresses this issue in Ephesians and Colossians. Peter also addresses this authority structure in his first epistle. And then there's the authority of parents over their children. This ordained authority structure is also under our attack today, perhaps as never before, and is being severely hampered in our culture And there are professing Christian young people who buck so hard against this authority that if others knew the extent of their rebellion, they might have serious doubts about the credibility of such a person's profession of faith. And in verses 12 and 13, we see a very specific authority ordained by God 
And this one is perhaps the most despised of all. It's church authority. Can you believe it? Church authority. Esteem them or respect them, Paul says. Why? Because they're so intelligent and spiritual and more godly than anyone else? No. Esteem them for their work's sake. He writes, those who are in positions of leadership within the church are accountable to others and are ultimately accountable to God himself for others. So esteem them for their work's sake. One of the things that I rejoice in in being part of a Presbyterian denomination is that there is an accountability structure in front of me. I am accountable to the presbytery. Every one of our ministers is. The proper exercise of authority and the proper submission to authority must be seen then as the expression of our sanctification if we're to be wholly sanctified to the Lord. In verse 14, we see three more exhortations coming in rapid order. We're to warn, we're to comfort, we're to support, all in an attitude of patience. Verse 14. The word warn is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the same word that in verse 12 is translated by the word admonish. So admonish or warn. And the word in the Greek is nuthateo. Nuthateo. Now some of you that know the religious trends of our day may be able to make a connection between that word and a certain brand of counseling that takes place in Christian circles. You may be familiar with the phrase nuthetic counseling. Nuthateo. There's the word it's based on. This is the kind of counseling that is advocated by J. Adams. It's recognized as being uh, a very good source for biblical counseling because it purports to be from a Reformed perspective. And the word nutheteo speaks literally of confrontational counseling. The idea is emphasized that a man is personally responsible to God, and this kind of counseling places a strong emphasis on that responsibility. Under this kind of counseling, sin in a believer's life is confronted and faced and dealt with. I suppose you could say, in a sense, that the pulpit ministry of a Bible-believing church becomes a form of nuthetic counseling. Preach the word, Paul writes to Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Interesting, isn't it, that of the three terms used in that verse to describe preaching, two of them are confrontational in nature, reprove and rebuke. That's kind of what my job becomes here, doesn't it? Reprove and rebuke and exhort, and hopefully they'll show up next Sunday too. (laughs) 
It was Dr. Cairn's belief during his time in the world that if the pulpit ministry was approached as a spiritual exercise, which meant the preacher sought God for his sermons rather than just um, created academic treatises and read them to his people, if the preacher sought God for his messages, then personal counseling could actually be reduced to a minimum. People who have a heart for Christ will respond to the preaching of God's word and will confront their sins and will endeavor to repent of their sins and have faith in Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting to note who it is that we're to warn or confront. The text says, warn them that are unruly. When you think of someone who's unruly, the first thing that often comes to mind is a child who asserts his independence and becomes strong-willed, unruly. He desires to have his own way, and in the strength of that desire, he becomes unruly. I find it interesting, however, that the Greek lexicon I consulted says this word unruly was used in Greek society of those who did not show up for work. Interesting, isn't it? I suppose you can make a connection between unruly and irresponsible or lazy, perhaps. And I think that by understanding the term this way and looking at the other descriptions in our text, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, the picture emerges in the spiritual realm of a soul that could be losing out with God. The word feeble-minded is a compound word that could mean slight of soul, or it might be described as faint-hearted. I think the term is translated feeble-minded because the next term, weak, also makes reference to the soul being weak. And so the total picture we have of those who need to be warned or comforted or supported, as the case may be, are those who have, through various ways, become spiritually careless and are not minding the things of God and whose hearts are no longer sensitive to the Spirit of God. Every means must be employed to minister to them. They must be confronted and supported in an attitude of patience. Now, unfortunately, we don't often measure up to this kind of ministry. At times, we fail to exercise ourselves by this standard, and at times, we fail to submit to this kind of ministry. Confrontation, you see, always has the potential for provoking a carnal response. And even comfort and support can provoke the recipient into a self-centered martyr's complex. Therefore, patience is called for. And this is why in the next verse, Paul warns us not to be pulled down into the realm of carnal bickering and proud backbiting if our ministries are not received in the right spirit. You see how he puts it in verse 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good. Oh, how 
tempting it is and how easy it is to succumb to the temptation to treat a man not how I would be treated by him, but how I actually am treated by him. You've treated me wickedly. You've treated me with evil. I'm going to respond in kind and treat you the same way. And am I not righteous to do so? Well, no. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good. And in verses 16 to 18, three more exhortations that must characterize our lives if we would minister or be ministered to. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. It seems like a pretty high ideal, doesn't it? Until you remember that it is the very God of peace that sanctifies you wholly. It is because you are at peace with God through Christ that you can and should rejoice evermore and pray constantly and be thankful in everything. Not really such a difficult uh, group of exhortations to heed if you keep in mind what you actually deserve from God and where you are right now. I mean, if we had what we deserved, where would we be right now? We'd be burning in hell. We'd be everlastingly condemned. Anything short of that, therefore, gives us cause for rejoicing and thanksgiving, no matter what kind of difficulties we're facing in life. Look to your Savior today. Remember his death. Remember his shed blood. Remember that at one time you were without hope, without Christ in the world. But now you who sometimes were afar off are brought near by the blood of Christ. You are fellow citizens of heaven with the saints and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So long as the truth of your salvation is fresh in your heart, then you'll be enabled to rejoice and pray and give thanks. The Holy Spirit will minister Christ to your hearts. The Holy Spirit will keep you sensitive to the blessings you have in Christ. He'll impress upon you all that you are and all that you have in our Savior And this is why we must ever be on our guard, verse 19, to quench not the Spirit. Don't cut him off through carnal lusts and vain pride. And in verses 19 and 20, we have what could be called a call to spiritual discernment. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings. Prophesyings, I believe, refer to the exercise of communicating God's Word. His Word is communicated when we preach. His Word is communicated when we minister to each other in song. His Word is communicated when we pray. And none of these activities are done under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, so we prove all things and hold fast that which is good and abstain not just from any manifestation of evil, but every appearance of evil. If something has good, something is good, but has the appearance or the potential for being viewed as bad, 
will abstain from that too. And this is our obedience to Christ. And these things become the expressions of our sanctification. These exhortations describe for us the things that God's Spirit will empower us to do. You should expect then to find from God the enabling power to submit and the enabling power to minister or serve and the enabling power to exercise spiritual discernment all in an attitude of patience and joy and thanksgiving. And so if you would be wholly sanctified, you must see God as the source of your sanctification. You must see obedience as the expression of your sanctification. And finally and briefly, if you would be wholly sanctified, you do so by seeing your own personal ministry as a contributing force to your sanctification. You have a ministry to perform. We all do. There's a very clear emphasis throughout this epistle to the Thessalonians to the need for Christians to minister to each other. Look at what Paul says, for example, chapter 4, verse 18, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Keep it up, he's saying. You're doing this, don't stop doing it. Indeed, increase and abound in it more and more. Chapter 5, verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them who are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, and do you notice who is to carry on the warning and the comforting and the supporting? Paul's not warning them or comforting or supporting them in that text. He's rather telling them to carry out this ministry of warning and comforting and supporting among themselves. I see that point as being something that is essential to the vitality of a church. The devil has succeeded, you know, to a very large degree, it would seem, in destroying the church as an institution in America. What then can we do to resist the devil in our church? What must we do to avoid becoming another urban casualty, so to speak? Well, let me just say that we must first fall back to the truth that Christ has said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So let's not, whatever we do, be pulled down by a pessimistic outlook that becomes self-fulfilling. Let's instead look to our Savior, remember who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do. And then let's build each other up spiritually. Really the essence of this is quite simple. We take each other to heart. We take each other to heart. 
We must be willing to submit to warnings when we hear them. We must be willing both to be comforted and supported and to minister that comfort and support to others within our ranks. And in this fashion, we can and will move forward because God will be sanctifying us wholly. I do not believe that any church that is engaged in this scriptural and spiritual practice of ministry need ever fear failure. And so, may the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee that thou art the source for our sanctification. We thank thee, Lord, that we're not left alone when it comes to the matter of our own progress in sanctification. We know that we do have a part to play. We know that we cannot simply be passive in this regard, that we are to be engaged, but we thank thee, Lord, that thou art the source who does supply the strength and the motivation for us to strive for holiness. So, Lord, may we, with total dependence upon thee, believing as we do that Christ died for our sins, May we draw from his everlasting love and his atoning death the motivation that we need to apply ourselves wholly to advancing in holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.